Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. So today we are going to talk about taxes, um, sort of. We are in the heat of U.S. tax season right now. Taxes are due in April, so we've been doing tax prep. Um, By my office, there is a tax prep place that I took a picture of because I just think that it's the strangest business proposition to have a tax prep place that says, when all else fails. I run a small business. I make videos for a living, and if somebody came to me and said, we want you to make a video for us, and I said, have you tried other people? I don't know that that would instill much confidence in my client. So, I don't know, maybe they're great. They say they have a rapid refund and highest something. Um, Either way, if if you use them and they're great, I'm not trying to disparage that business. I just always thought that it was really funny to have a business called When All Else Fails, especially with your taxes. Anyway, we are in Matthew still. Uh, We've been in Matthew basically since the inception of Contrast Church. Um, We're making a very slow uh, trek through it. And today we are in Matthew 22. And I'm just going to read our little section here first. It's going to be Matthew 22, 15 through 22. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and planned together to entrap him with his own words. They sent to him their disciples, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You do not court anyone's favor because you show no partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus realized their evil intentions and said, Hypocrites, why are you testing me? Show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? They replied, Caesar's. He said to them, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now when they heard this, they were stunned and they left him and went away. So this passage is about Jesus telling us that we need to pay our taxes and that is it. So you can all go home. Happy Sunday. That is all that I have to say. I'm just kidding. That is not what I have to say. In fact, I think that this passage really isn't about paying taxes at all or about submitting necessarily to the authority uh, of ruling governments at all. I think that it is talking much more about something deeper, and it is showing us, in this case, the way that Jesus is um, giving us an example about how the kingdom of God is radical and upside down from what we are expecting it to be. And I hope by the end of this talk, you will see that and that you will agree with that assessment. So let's set the stage a little bit for what's going on here in this passage. Um, We're calling this section of Matthew that we're in right now, The Storm. Uh, That is not an official title. That is just what we at Contrast have decided to name this. Uh, This little, you know, part of the Matthew narrative. Um, And as Trey mentioned in the first message in this series, 
It's called the storm because this, this portion of Matthew takes place over a week in Jerusalem. And there are a lot of different people groups who are coming together in this one time and place in Jerusalem. And there is going to be tension. It is a recipe for the perfect storm, right? We have religious leaders like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. We have Romans, Roman soldiers, guards, the, the governor, all of the people who are sort of keeping the Roman authority in Jerusalem. We have Jews who are coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. So they're there to complete the ceremonial rituals. They're there to feast and party and have fun and celebrate. We have a, a section of those people, probably a pretty large section, that is following Jesus in the fact that they are interested in his teachings and they get the sense that there is something messianic about Jesus. They might not fully understand what that looks like yet, but they are interested in keeping an ear out for him and, and being involved with what he has to say. Then we have Jesus himself and his disciples and his inner circle that are here. And again, most of these groups have wildly different visions for what they want to get out of this time, this week-long visit in Jerusalem. Many of them have competing agendas. And when you have a bunch of people in the same place that have competing agendas, conflict can happen. So that is where we are when this incident happens. So the Pharisees go out and they plot. The last time this verb for plot was used in Matthew was in chapter 12, and it was when the Pharisees were plotting to kill Jesus. So we're aware that this is a very significant thing that the Pharisees are doing. They are plotting to kill Jesus. We're being alerted to the fact that this isn't just some little thing, inconvenience that they're trying to make for Jesus, but they are trying to bring harm to him. And so they decide to go out and to plot. Now, I don't think that this is like something that they just think of immediately. I think that this took some time to plan. We'll see a little bit of that because of sort of the complexity and how decent I actually think their trap is, how it would probably catch most people in this. Obviously, we know that Jesus doesn't fall into the trap, but it's pretty smart. And the Pharisees go away and they come back with an interesting group of people, an unlikely ally, and that is the Herodians. The Herodians are a group of Jews that are pro-Herod. So they are supporting the rule and lineage of Herod. Now, Herod the Great, the one who built the temple that this is all happening in, and the one who ruled Jerusalem and Judea during the birth of Jesus, is dead. He's gone at this point. Rome has instead instituted these governors, of which right now is Pontius Pilate, who we meet later in the Matthew narrative. But these Jews, the Herodians, are pro-Herod. They want the Herodian line to continue. And by extension, that means that they are pro-Rome, because Herod is a, a Roman installation. Herod is not Jewish. Herod is allowed to rule as king of Judea by the Romans. And so by the support of the Herodians, they are... Um, aligning themselves with Rome. Likely they are doing this because that gives them some sort of security and power and safety uh, amongst the Roman occupation. Either way, they are in the Roman camp. The Pharisees on the other side are not in the Roman camp. They are the pro 
Jewish camp. So again, it seems odd that these two groups would come together. I have a little chart here um, that shows some of the political alignments of these different groups of people. On the x-axis, we have whether they favor Jewish culture and rule on the right, or if they favor Greco-Roman rule and culture on the left. At the top, we have whether they are very politically involved or whether they are not politically involved. So as you can see, the Pharisees are on one side, the Herodians are on another side. People who have two wildly different visions for what they want out of their nation are coming together to trap Jesus. Now you might ask, why are these two groups collaborating? That seems awfully strange. Well, there is one thing that is in common between all of these groups of people, including the Pharisees and the Herodians, and that is they want Jesus gone. They need Jesus gone. When you have a common enemy, you can be friends, at least for that purpose of getting rid of your common enemy, right? So the Pharisees and the Herodians are an unlikely duo to come together and attempt to get rid of Jesus. So they approach Jesus. They have a plan in mind. Their plan looks something like this. Step one is to disarm Jesus. So what do they do? It says, they sent him their disciples along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You do not court anyone's favor because you show no partiality. This is called captatio benevolentiae. It is a classical rhetoric uh, device where you try to gain favor with your audience in an attempt to get them on your side so that they are more receptive to what you have to say. They are trying to disarm Jesus by making him think that they are his friends, that they are entering into a conversation with him fairly and justly, and that they are truly interested in what he has to say. That is not the case. But step one, disarm. Step two, they want to pin Jesus on a specific topic, okay? This topic happens to be taxes to Rome. This is what is called a dilemma, what they are setting up, right? I'm familiar with this from some military theory. Uh, you don't want to present to your enemy a problem. Problems have a solution. You want to present to your enemy a dilemma. A dilemma has two or more options, all of which are bad. There are no good choices. So what they are doing is approaching Jesus, they're trying to get his guard down and then present him with a question in which no matter what way he answers, he is going to be harmed by what he says. And they're trying to get it so that he does it publicly. And here are the two choices. On one side, you have he uh, <clears throat> says paying, to tax, paying taxes to Rome is good. Paying, to tax, paying taxes to Rome is something you should do. Because again, they say, should, is it right to pay taxes to Rome or not? If he says, yes, it's right to pay taxes to Rome, he begins to lose a large portion of his popular support. That's because the people who are following him, who are picking up on his messianic messages, are expecting a Messiah who is going to take down Rome. It doesn't sound much like someone who's going to take down Rome if they start saying, you should pay your taxes to Rome. 
So they know that if he answers in that way, he's going to harm his messianic image amongst the Jews who are here in Jerusalem. And that is a good thing for the religious leaders. They do not want Jesus to maintain or gain popularity. The second option is that he says, it is not right to pay taxes to Rome. Now all of a sudden, if he answers this way, remember they have the Herodians. Why are the Herodians there? Because they're pro-Rome. If he says it's not right to pay taxes to Rome, the Herodians are immediately going to go to the Roman authorities and say, hey, we're on your side. Look at this. We found this guy who's saying that they, people shouldn't pay taxes to you. He's an insurrectionist. He is a revolutionary. You need to capture him, arrest him, and kill him, and kill him quickly. Now, that is what I think the most likely option that these people are hoping Jesus will do. They are hoping that he will actually say, it's not right to pay taxes to Rome. It's reasonable to think that that is actually, they believe that Jesus actually thinks this um, because he has, up to this point, been revolutionary, uh, a sort of incendiary character. He is radical. He challenges the religious authority and is constantly sort of bringing tension to places. And so these religious leaders probably think, hey, it's a decent chance that he actually thinks that we shouldn't pay taxes to Rome. So if we can get him to say that, we can use that against him. Which again is just kind of funny to me in this whole scenario because the Pharisees are on the side of probably not paying taxes to Rome. Like, if that's what they think, it's like, he's in your camp. But because he's causing an inconvenience for them, they would rather get rid of him, even if he aligns with them, than accept what Jesus is saying and who he is and what type of teaching he's bringing into their territory. Now, Jesus does not fall for the trap and he gives them an answer that they likely have not been expecting. And he starts that answer by saying, he says, but Jesus realized their evil intentions and said, hypocrites, why are you testing me? Show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought him a denarius. Now, this is the part in the message where I would have loved to pull out of my pocket the real silver denarius tribute penny from Tiberius, 30 AD. But I looked online and they're like 900 to like $3,000 on eBay. And I just came back from a contrast retreat talking about financial responsibility and I thought that that probably wasn't the best investment. I don't know, maybe it would be. I really wanted to do it. I thought it'd be really cool. I was telling Nick about this. He's like, what are you going to do, pass it around? And I was like, yeah. How cool would it be for people to be able to like touch it and look at it? He's like, that is so dumb. <clears throat> so I just have a picture of it instead. I hope that that'll be good enough for you. This is a picture of the Tiberius Denarius, what we commonly call now, we refer to it as the tribute penny. It's called that because of this story. So this is likely the coin that would have been brought to Jesus by this group of Pharisees and Herodians. And on the front, it has a profile of the Emperor Tiberius. 
The inscription on it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the back is a picture of uh, a female character. Most scholars would say it's probably a personification of the goddess Roma. And the inscription there says Pontiff Maxim, which is a reference to the high priest of the Roman pagan religion. So there is a religious significance to this coin. This coin is, has monetary value, but it was also used by the Roman Empire to further the worship of the emperor and to further the imperial cult. It obviously has a lot of religious symbols on there. It is equating the emperor to God, saying that he is divine, and it is showing an image of a Roman deity. This would have been a problem for Jews because Jews were allowed to honor the emperor, but they were not supposed to have images or symbols or anything else that invoked another god. And that's exactly what this penny did. In fact, when Herod built the temple, he ended up putting a golden eagle over the great gate of the temple. I can't tell you how long I tried to figure out which gate was the great gate because there's a lot of gates on the temple and apparently there's just no information on that. So that was my frustration this week in trying to prep for that. But he puts an eagle on the top as a nod to Israel and it's so inflammatory to the Jews, they repel off the top of the temple and cut it off with axes. And yet, they bring these coins with the faces and inscriptions of the Roman deity into the temple complex in their pockets. And this is setting the stage to why this has such significance in this moment and why the Jews here are pinning Jesus with this question. They are attaching both their religious significance and their political significance at the same time onto this coin and posing that to Jesus. The most important part about this coin, though, is that Rome controlled the mint of gold and silver coins. They were the only ones that could make them. And officially, they were Rome's property. They were owned by the emperor. So, what does Jesus say? He says, whose image is this and whose inscription? And they said, it's Caesar's. And he said, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now when they heard this, they were stunned and they left him and went away. Now one of the big questions that I had as I was going through this is, why does Jesus' response stun them? What is it about the things, the way that he answers their question that shocks them? Number one, I think that there's an obvious thing. That is, they went into this situation very confident in their plan and they did all of the things right by the book and they thought that they were going to have Jesus pinned and it was going to be a victory for them and it didn't work out. Usually when we enter situations where we're pretty confident about an outcome and something wildly different happens, we're pretty shocked too, right? So there's that part. But I think there's something deeper. And that is that they are approaching Jesus and they are expecting that Jesus is operating in their same reality. They are bringing him questions about their governance, their sovereignty, their influence, their power. 
and they're trying to get him to make a statement on it. Now, they're really trying to get him to say something so that they can arrest him, right? But at the heart of it, it shows that by the nature of the question they bring, it shows the things that they are concerned about. And so they are putting all of their weight of their lived experience onto this coin that they bring to Jesus. And it makes me think a lot about how we do the exact same thing. I do have a dollar in my wallet. I have it because I made sure I had a dollar in my wallet so that I could do this example. But we have money too. And we go, well, whose image is that? This is a $1 bill, so it's George Washington. And whose inscription is that? What does it say? It says, the United States of America. Whose is this? This isn't mine. I don't own it. It says whose it is right there, the United States of America. And yet how often do I put so much of myself onto something like this, onto a piece of paper, where I go, this is representative of my social status, my ability to exert power and authority over people. It can procure my safety and security in many cases. It um, has my dreams and aspirations attached to it. It, al it allows me to fulfill things that I want in my life. We also connect a national identity to it. Obviously, this is a currency for the United States. So as an American, we often look at this and we can go, this has a lot of the national identity that we build represented in this. And what we think and our, our political ideas and our social ideas get projected onto a piece of paper. And in the same way, Jesus says, it doesn't really matter. It's pretty useless. It is a piece of paper. I said in the first service that if I was really committed to it, I would burn it. But I think that that's a crime, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I also kind of want the dollar, too. <laughs> Can't get you much, but something. And so I'm using that as an example for, to, to be able to paint the picture of how we are so similar to these Pharisees and Herodians who are coming to Jesus with these loaded questions. And we are trying to get him to sit in our world. We are trying to get him to play in our space. And we are not all that concerned with what Jesus really has to say, but we are trying to wiggle our way into an interaction with Jesus in which we get exactly what we want out of it. And we are building our own kingdom and our own universe over here, and we're saying to Jesus, you're just going to be the divine contractor that makes it happen. And I'm not all of that concerned about whether or not you have a different plan. Now, something else that I think is interesting is in the same way that Jesus looks at the denarius and he says, whose image and whose inscription is that? When I think about 
like, then he says, you know, give it to Caesar, what Caesar's give to God, what is God's? And I think, well, what is God's? I think, well, what are, what's the object that has his image and his inscription on it? And I think it's us. I think it's our hearts. And he's saying, these things, like, are not, they're, they're, you know, whatever. But you are God's, and you need to give over to me what is mine. And I think sometimes that's, that's the, uh, the most challenging proposition that Jesus can give us. Is like, I would much rather Jesus play in my little political, interpersonal desire world than me have to give that up to, to play in his kingdom. Because what these... Pharisees and Herodians are doing, and again, why I think it stuns them is they're coming and they have fused these worlds together. They have fused their religion and their view of, of Yahweh together with national independence and um, you know, Roman occupation and all of these things. I'm not saying that their desires for those things were, were wrong. It was their priority list was upside down. And what Jesus does is in answering the way that he did, he splits those two out. And he says, there's an earthly side, and that's what you're trying to get me to play to, but I'm not interested in that. Because I'm telling you that there is a heavenly side that I am much more concerned about. And I don't know how familiar you might be with this. We, in Christian circles, we always talk about the gospel. The gospel. And that comes from both Greek and Jewish root words that translate literally to good news. That's why we call it the good news, right? Sometimes we're like, well, what, what is the good news? Well, in the context of the uses in Hebrew and Greek, these words would have been used to signify messengers being sent out through the empire or the kingdom to declare to the citizens that a new king had come to power. There was a new ruler on the throne. Or... In the same way, it could be used to say, there has been victory in battle. And so when we talk about the gospel, we get to say, there is a new king on the throne. And victory has been won. And that king is Jesus. And his rule, is it's, 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 like, it's been hard for me to put this into words exactly as I've, as I've been like parsing this out been really spending a lot of time trying to like think about what this means for us but it's like they show him this denarius that has this picture of this emperor who like claims to be god and how what a weird experience that must have been for for the literal creator of the universe to be like approached by these people who think they have so much power and they're like here's what should we do with this coin that has a face of a guy who's claiming to be god and just the absolute impermanence of that symbol to Jesus. And the fact that it's like, in a couple days here, he's going to be killed and he's going to be risen from the dead and he is going to assume the throne. Like, that emperor, Emperor Tiberius is no longer going to be the ruler. He may continue 
to rule on earth, but he is not the final ruler. And Jesus will take his place on the throne. And the throne of heaven is a throne representative of everything that is wrong in the world being made right. And it's not hard to go outside and look at things that are wrong with the world. It's pretty easy. And sometimes when I think about, like, is, is the gospel actually, like, good news? Is it, like, what is, what, is, what is good news about this? How do I talk to people about there being good news? And sometimes I'm overwhelmed with this feeling of, like, whoa, is it broken out there? And things are so messed up. Through all of humanity, this has been the struggle of, like, there is death, and there is suffering, and there is dying, and there is evil, and there are people who instigate evil against each other and who are mean and selfish and brutal. And yet, there is a new king on the throne who says, that will not exist here, not on my watch. And I really look forward to that. Sometimes that's kind of scary because we're just so, we're so attached to like our little world. I'm like, it's hard for me to like think about anything outside of that. But I just think, wow, will it be cool when we can be in a place where everything is made right. So as I was, again, going through this, I had a couple questions that challenged me in this view of, of how I'm approaching Jesus and the context of his kingdom in our current lives. And so I've been wrestling with some of these. Maybe these are things that you'll wrestle with too as you leave and go about your week. I'm going to read some of these questions. One, how am I trying to force Jesus into my own agenda? How have I created agenda, a vision, a life, a Whatever it may be, all of the things that we do that permeate our existence, how am I trying to just make that happen and then say, like, cool, God, like, it'd be cool if you helped me with this. And I'm not interested at all with letting him build it himself. How am I hoping to trap him into taking sides? Or how am I asking him leading questions. How often do I come to Jesus with my own money and I lay on the flattery with him? Oh, Jesus, you're so great. Oh. I don't really pray like that, but I imagine there's like some people who are probably like, I don't know, emotional. I do have emotions. I'm not saying that. But, um, <clears throat> but I, pr- I, I feign interest, right? And, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not actually interested in and, and what he says, I'm trying to flatter him to get him on my side, to lower his defenses, and then I can trap him and get him to commit to something. How do I refuse to turn myself over to God? If I am something that belongs to God, where am I not willingly turning myself over? And what I think I sometimes wrestle with the most, how might I scheme to get rid of God? How might it be better and easier and more convenient if I could just kick him out of the temple, 
if I could just find a way to get him arrested, if I could just find a way to remove Jesus from the scene, man, my life would be easier because that's what these people thought. They really thought it. There were lots of signs that were saying, like, this guy's the Messiah. And they were like, "Eh, yeah, but he's kind of annoying. (laughs) And I don't think that we're all that different. So I just want you, if that's something that you feel like is on your heart to think about, think about and wrestle with it with me this week as we think about this passage. I'm going to invite Nick up. He's going to come up and play a little bit on the keys while we have our formation time. Our time of formation is a space that we create at the end of every service, and it's called formation time for a reason. We are trying to elevate the idea of spiritual formation here. Not that we just come and consume a Sunday and have a great time and then leave and then nothing changes, but how can we absorb fully what God is trying to teach us? And so there's four elements to this. First one is prayer, then there's reflection, there's giving, and there is the bread in the cup communion at the front and the back. Something that I do want to say, I said this in the first service too, I was thinking this morning about um, prayer, and we have a prayer team that is in the back every Sunday, and we would love for you to get prayer for them, from them, but I do this a lot. I sit there, and I'm like, oh, well, I don't know. I don't really think I want to go back and get, like, it's kind of dark, and I have to, like, whisper, like, really serious things to them and, like, share my secrets with maybe a stranger. (laughs) You can totally do that if you want, and that would be encouraged. But it doesn't have to be that. You don't have to have something big or major or scary or hard to get prayer. In fact, I think sometimes it is the ministry that those people are doing for you to go to them and just say, I don't know what God wants me to hear, but I'm going to trust that he will speak through you. And if I go and just say like, I don't know, just pray for me. Whatever, whatever's on your heart, whatever the spirit leads, just pray for me. That is good enough. And I think that that would be a huge win for our church if we started approaching prayer more like that instead of uh, approaching prayer as like, well, I have this laundry list of things. Like, I'm building my kingdom and it's hard. God, like, help me do it. Sometimes it's all about being like, you know what? I'm not going to have an agenda. I'm just going to show up. I'm going to listen. I'm going to trust that God is going to tell me what he wants to tell me. So I really would encourage you to do that. I'm going to pray and then we'll have this time and and you can, you know, just do what you think is going to be right for you here. Father, I thank you so much for what you've done as our Savior. I thank you that you are tearing down our personal kingdoms every day. That kind of sucks, but we know that it's necessary and it's good. And often good things are hard. I pray that as we leave this room and we go out into Grandview and in Columbus this week, that we would be reminded about the good news, that there is a new king on the throne and a new kingdom at hand in which we are citizens and we are living right now. I pray that that would be so exciting for us that we could tell people, hey, you know what? Guess what? this world that's broken and sucky 
is not the end. There is someone who's ruling it right now who's going to make it all better. I just pray that you would just give us hope and wisdom and strength. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.